Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. Today, I'm going to be talking to pro-life apologist Scott Klusendorf about whether or not the COVID-19 lockdowns are pro-life, what we should think about the arguments regarding the protection of the vulnerable, and what he thinks we should be doing next. That's coming right up. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the show, and thank you for joining us again this week. Today, we're going to be talking to my friend Scott Klusendorf about the lockdowns and what we should be doing next. There's been a lot of discussion online over the past several weeks about how to protect uh, those with pre-existing conditions, how to protect the elderly, uh, what is the right response to this pandemic. Uh, Does saying that we should reopen the economy mean you're not pro-life? Does it mean you're valuing profits over people? We're going to be discussing all of that with Scott Klusendorf of Life Training Institute. He's the author of Pro-Life 101. He's the author of The Case for Life. If you use pro-life apologetics, you're probably using an argument Scott Klusendorf came up with at some point. And so we're really glad he agreed to come on the show and have this really important discussion at a time when a lot of people are, are confused about what to do next. So without further introduction from me, here's my conversation with pro-life apologist, author, and speaker Scott Klusendorf. All right, Scott, uh, let's talk about this article you wrote for the Christian Research Institute called COVID-19, Do Pro-Life Principles Require a Sustained Shutdown of the Economy? And then the subtitle is Who Decides? So before we get into the meat of this, what's your basic thesis and what prompted you to write this? Well, what concerned me was a social media exchange I had with a respected Christian philosopher who's pro-life, his credentials are unassailable. But when we engaged in a conversation about whether sustained shutdowns were required for Christians and specifically pro-life Christians to embrace, I argued that there was something more complex going here than just lives versus profits. And he took issue with that. And he said, look, look, if we're pro-life, Uh, we don't worry about the economy. And shortly after that, Russell Moore weighed in and said the same thing. And so did a Wheaton uh, theology department prof. And as I began to read what these folks were saying, it occurred to me that they were really presenting a false choice, that the issue here is not lives versus profits. The issue here is how should pro-lifers respond to save the most lives given the pandemic we've been dealt. And that's the real issue here, not this uh, binary uh, draconian choice of lives versus profits, with, which oversimplifies everything. And then, of course, the, the second issue was, who, who decides what we should do with structuring society? Right. This Christian philosopher I was arguing with, he said doctors alone are qualified to make this decision. And my argument is, no. Uh, Doctors are qualified to tell us how a disease works on the human body. They are not qualified to tell us how we have to structure our lives together in light of a pandemic. They're a voice in that discussion. They are not the voice in that discussion. So my article, the thesis is basically this, that 
in lifting the economic shutdown, we are not violating pro-life principles. And then secondly, doctors alone should not be the ones setting policy. So let's let's back all the way up because I noticed you say at the beginning of your article more or less how I felt when the lockdown first got announced uh, in Ontario, for example, there was this idea that if we all kind of stayed away from each other for a couple of weeks, then we would flatten the curve. Uh, that there, you know, we wouldn't have these nightmare triage situations in emergency rooms. Uh, that doctors would basically be given enough breathing space to ensure that there was enough ventilators was the big thing for everybody who might need right. a ventilator. Uh, here in Ontario, almost two weeks ago already, they said if we get a surge, we now have enough ventilators for for anybody who might need one. So these nightmare triage situations where you know somebody's eighty year old grandparent, um, like mine, could be sacrificed for a twenty year old who needs a ventilator. Those those situations are no longer in the offing and yet sort of here we are still under lockdown so one of the things that struck me about your article earlier on is you notice that the goalposts have been moved and this is what i've been feeling because i understood the lockdown okay we're going to lock down to protect the old people right i have three of my four grandparents left alive it's not very hard to sell me on that However, once we flattened the curve, it became, we're just going to sort of keep things locked down for a reason that we won't articulate clearly. Is this about reducing the infection rate, eliminating the infection rate, flattening the curve, waiting for a vaccine? Um, And you get the distinct sense that the politicians just have no idea really what they're doing and as such are picking what they think to be the safest route. So what's your feeling on all of that? Well, you're absolutely right. They moved the goalpost on us. Uh, we were told initially, we just need to flatten the curve to make sure our hospitals are not overwhelmed. Now, what they're saying, once those models predicting that we were going to have millions of Americans and Canadians overwhelming our hospital systems here in North America, the, the game changed once those models that forecasted that were proven utterly wrong. Then the game became, oh, we have to beat the disease itself. You have Dr. Anthony Fauci here in the U.S. arguing that we cannot go back to normal until we have beaten the disease, till there are, and listen how he defines this, no more infections and no more people developing COVID-19 from the infections. Wow, when's that going to happen? That could be decades. And so I have become convinced that what's driving this debate is not science, but worldview. There's something else going on here, way beyond just what the science would indicate. Not only because we don't treat other diseases the way we've treated uh, the coronavirus, but because I see in play gross inconsistencies. For example, Dr. Fauci says, it's not safe enough to go back to work. We can't do that yet. We've got to put up with this inconvenience. By the way, calling 47 million unemployed Americans an inconvenience is breathtakingly narrow. Uh, It's stupid. It's a disaster to have that many people unemployed. But that aside, he goes on to say that if you want to arrange a hookup on on your Tinder account, uh, that's fine if you're willing to accept the risk. So in his mind, it's not okay to go back to work because it's unsafe, but it is okay to do a hookup on Tinder if you want to. That's your call. Look, that, that's not science. That's something else going on here. So when it comes to worldview, so th- this is interesting because I remember like the, when the, the first week or two, I actually felt initially encouraged by the fact that this underlying Christian view that, that all lives have value 
uh, was very much being displayed by the government that we were willing to take an economic hit to preserve the vulnerable. I thought that said something very interesting about the pro-life argument. Uh, I, I forget if it was it was you or one of your colleagues at LI who wrote the column as well on on, on how we sacrifice bodily autonomy for others and what that says about the entire entire abortion debate. So where do you think the the, the worldview plays into the 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 nonstop continuing lockdown at this point? Well, the worldview is this. The worldview driving it, in my view, is a very anti-market economy worldview. It basically says market economies are evil. They exploit the poor. And if we can destroy them, uh, hey, so be it. Uh, I think that is a Marxist worldview, not a Christian worldview. The Christian worldview says that market economies, when they're undergirded with the rule of law, and a robust moral culture actually do more to lift people out of poverty than any other thing you can point to, better than any government program, better than any charity or religious mission trip or anything else you want to point to. Market economies not only heal the sick and provide the resources to run our hospitals that are treating COVID-19, but they also lift the poor out of poverty because they're about wealth creation. And the worldview assumption here is, among some left-leaning pro-lifers, is that wealth creation is somehow a dirty concept, uh, that that it's bad. And I don't think that's true at all. In fact, a pro-lifer should want to see the ability to pursue a number of intrinsic goods, which would include longevity of life, life enhancement, educating our children, nourishing our spouses and family, providing charity to those who need it, uh, contributing to our churches. All of this relates to the common good, and market economies play uh, an instrumental role in all of that. So I think the worldview idling in the surface is this uh, lightweight form of Marxism that says, well, capitalism, market economies, they're bad. And if you're pro-life, how can you put money above people? That's a false dichotomy. What we're asking is, what is actually going to do the best good here? Shut down the economy and see people lose their lives because of that? Or keep the economy open? And yes, there's a trade-off where we can foresee some people dying, but we don't intend them dying. And here's the other worldview part of this uh, that I think we need to look at, Jonathan. People misunderstand what the pro-life argument really is. Right. The pro-life argument is not that we must do everything to oppose death at all costs. That is not the pro-life argument. The pro-life argument is we will never intentionally kill an innocent human being, nor will we support policies aimed at doing that. And we saw this on full display here in the U.S. when shortly after COVID-19 broke out, you had congressional Democrats on the left arguing that we needed to rescind all restrictions on federal funding for fetal tissue research so that we could use that research to treat COVID-19. And pro-lifers said, wait a minute, no way, we're not going down that road. We will not exchange innocent human lives even if it helps us profit in the midst of a pandemic. That's a case where lives versus profits is properly articulated. We will never agree to a policy that intentionally kills one human so another can can survive. But when we talk about the economy, we're talking about something that benefits millions of people 
and creates longevity of life, helps us fight disease, helps us avoid starvation and poverty, which kill people. So a pro-lifer can consistently say, look, I'm not going to do anything that will intentionally kill an innocent human being, but I can foresee trade-offs where we will say, look, in the pursuit of other intrinsic goods, we will allow for the possibility of death, though we don't intend it. I mean, if, if we must always do what avoids death, we can never drive more than 25 miles an hour because, after all, there's 1.5 million traffic accidents a year that kill people. Right. But nobody would go for that. Right. No, it's kind of interesting because it's been very difficult to articulate that point without people hammering on you and saying, look, right, you're pro-life, you work in the pro-life movement. How can you actually express a view that seems to indicate a measure of callousness towards those at risk? And you think of uh, Rusty Thomas wrote one piece in First Things. Um um, and he got just absolutely hammered over that piece. Ben Shapiro, I don't know if you saw that, also made a comment that was clipped, taken out of context, and framed uh, to make it look as if he didn't care about all lives. So when you make the case that it's time for the lockdowns to end, how would you suggest pro-lifers make that case? How would you suggest that we frame it in a way that's succinct and as impervious as, as possible to being taken deliberately out of context? Well, the first thing we need to do is what we talked about a moment ago. Make sure people know what we mean by pro-life. Pro-life does not mean we take on every issue under the sun. It does not mean that we oppose killing uh, or death, rather, uh, in any case. It means we will never intentionally kill an innocent human being or support policies that do that. Then the next thing we need to do is show that our opponents are poisoning the well. When right. Russell Moore and others say, look, you can't go back to work until doing so won't intentionally kill the old, the elderly, and the vulnerable, uh, that is a false dichotomy. Uh, we are not proposing a trading of lives for profits. We are proposing a way to limit the loss of life given the pandemic we've been dealt. And, and absolutely destroying an economy is not the way to do that because there are deaths from other things we need to look at here. For example, in the largest study done uh, on the topic of employment and a healthy economy versus life longevity, a Yale researcher found that a healthy economy and the ability to work contributes to longevity more than anything else. And when you destroy the economy, life expectancy goes down. Suicides are correlated to a loss of economic productivity. During the Great Depression, 44,000 Americans in my country uh, committed suicide. Uh, their deaths were directly correlated to the loss of work. After the economic downturn in 2008, uh, some Swedish researchers found that suicide rates went up due to that economic turndown. Again, a correlation between suicide and economic uh, collapse. These are things we need to look at. Then how about this one? What about the fact that we have millions of drug addicts and alcohol addicts who can no longer have their support meetings because of the shutdown? One U.S. researcher has called this an academic, or excuse me, he, he's called it a, an epidemic relapse in the nation, meaning there are so many people right now falling out of treatment and falling out of sobriety because they're forced into isolation, which is the worst possible thing you can do to an addict. So there are consequences of shutting down the economy that have a direct impact on human life, 
And pro-lifers are not inconsistent to point these things out. You can bat this question away if you want, but I, I am genuinely curious to know what your opinion is on this. Why uh, does Russell Moore write some of that sort of thing? Because his article uh, was very eloquent, uh, very eloquently written. And if if he had been attacking a, a an actual position rather than a strong man, uh, straw man, pardon me, it would have been it would have been a brilliant article. But he's done this more often, where he's sort of uh, like I, I know I know he's very pro life, he's very anti abortion. At the same time, he does seem to have a tendency to cloud the issue, to add things to the issue. And for me, that just see one, it really it really creates a definition of pro-life that, that doesn't work for a lot of pro-lifers. And three, it gives aid and comfort to the enemy, in this case, progressives. It's interesting, the phrase people over profit, the name of one of the political parties in Ireland that campaigned for legalized abortion back in 2018 was called people over profit. So that phrase can be used any way you want. Why do you think that he takes these positions and writes articles that he knows for a fact, because he's a very smart guy, are going to be used against pro-life, pro-lifers who have a different political view than he does? Well, I agree with you. Uh, I don't question Russell Moore's opposition to abortion. And I do think he has been unfairly attacked uh, by some people. But I do agree with you that there is a tendency on his part to attack straw man arguments and to create false dichotomies and binary thinking scenarios where there are credible third options we could be looking at. Uh, I don't know exactly why he does it, but I will tell you this. His attempt to redefine what pro-life means must be opposed by pro-lifers. His attempt to broaden pro-life to mean immigration reform, opposing poverty, uh, taking on work uh, ethic that is more fair to poor workers, and a host of other issues he lumps into pro-life, that must be opposed. If he wins, he will bankrupt the pro-life movement and children will die. That will be the consequences right. of that. Now, uh, is he right that as a Christian, I will have a broader uh, ethic than just abortion? Well, of course he's right about that. Uh, but the problem is he's not making that careful distinction between the ethics of a Christian worldview and the operational objectives of the pro-life movement. And if you distinguish those, as I believe you should, you realize that all kinds of social justice issues are right. narrowly focused. You know, nobody beats up on a Christian daycare ministry that opens a after-school daycare program in downtown Toronto to help poor mothers have a place to just relax for a couple of hours at home getting dinner ready before all the kids come tumbling in after school. Nobody would go to that ministry and say, why aren't you open 24 seven? And what are you doing about gang violence? And what are you doing about other inner city problems like poverty in general? No, we applaud them for doing something even though it's narrow to address an immediate problem. It's only pro-lifers that people like Russell Moore beat up on. And the thing that uh, I find just astounding at Evangelicals for Life, in 2017, where I was invited to give an address, uh, I had uh, I watched a speech that just floored me by Eugene Cho, who's a rather progressive, left-leaning, uh, former megachurch pastor from Seattle. And Cho was there in D.C. to march in the Women's March and in the Pro-Life March. And here's a guy who is functionally pro-choice. He says 
that abortion is wrong, but it should not be made illegal because the cost of prohibiting it is too high. Uh, and this guy is lecturing pro-lifers at a pro-life evangelical conference, telling them they must broaden their job descriptions to be wound to the tomb and to take care of all life. And this guy's not even one of us. And he's given a platform for telling yeah. us. Well, and, and some of the phraseology, some of that phraseology, I think, is, is so indicative, right? It's like the cost is too high to who, right? This is why it's so important people see what abortion actually is. Well, yeah, try this, Jonathan. Uh, imagine saying to a racial minority, hey, uh, we'll protect you as long as it's not too expensive, as long as most people agree with us. I mean, we would find that barbaric. And this is Eugene Cho's uh, worldview. Now, again, I don't believe Russell Moore holds to uh, a worldview that says unborn children shouldn't be protected. He would like legal protection for unborn mm -hmm. children. So he's different from Eugene Show in that regard. But when you platform guys like Eugene Show at your conference, uh, that says you don't understand what the pro-life message really should be. Well, there's there's two things there. Like, I, I just kind of wanted to run by you on that subject because – like, uh, as you know, I have dual citizenship, so I can vote on both sides of the, of the border. And, and, and 2016 wasn't any easier for me than it was for other people, at least initially. But one of the things that I find interesting about articles, um, like some of the stuff Russell Moore's been writing, and and not just to pick on him, because there's 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 he he's he is I think the most prominent representative of a cadre of people who try to expand the term pro life for for two primary reasons that I could see, and I want to know if if you disagree with these. The first one is just it's it, it's nice to be liked. If you camp out on the abortion issue all the time, you're gonna get a ton of backlash. But if you say I'm pro life, but I agree with this, 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 you know, uh, you know, when you talk to somebody from the Huffington Post, they're going to be like, oh, you're one of the nice ones then. Right. Um, so it, it's a lot easier to make your view palatable to, to, you know, progressive media when, when you, when you essentially offload all sorts of other conservative political views. But the second thing I notice is that is it, what I, which, what I find very difficult is when you expand the term pro-life to include all these other social issues, what you're all you're really doing is giving a lot of Christians permission to vote Democrat, because you're saying it doesn't matter if, let's say, in this in, in in this cycle, Joe Biden supports abortion up until birth because he's a big fan of the labor unions and a working wage and all those sorts of things. He's just as pro-life because you know his Republican opponent stands for this, but not for this, and so you can mix and match, and you forget that in one instance, um, we're you know we're arguing about an economic policy that reasonable people can disagree on. On the other hand, you're arguing about the dismembering and decapitating of an actual human being. Yeah, this is where our Catholic friends have a very helpful distinction in their moral theology. They make a distinction between intrinsic evils and prudential evils. Hmm. Uh, uh, here's an example of how you would dice those out. An intrinsic evil is one that is evil on the face of it, and it must always be opposed and never permitted. And intrinsic evils would include things like rape, murder, uh, intentionally killing innocent human beings. Those are intrinsic evils, and abortion, of course, would fall into that because abortion is the intentional killing of an innocent human being. Intrinsic evils are non-negotiable. They're in a separate category from prudential evils, things that might be evil, on, but not on the face of it. They're evil right. based on the circumstances surrounding them. So, for example, uh, war would be an example of uh, a possible prudential evil. It could be wrong, 
but it depends on the circumstances surrounding it. Capital punishment, same thing. And what people tend to do is they lump the intrinsic evils in with the contingent or prudential evils. And they make one big moral stew out of it without realizing you cannot mix those two categories. If somebody is great on health care, but they think it should be legal for men to beat their wives, it doesn't matter how good they are on these other issues. They must be opposed, and a Christian pro-life worldview will oppose them. Let's assume, let's set aside for the moment all economic debate over whether a free market economy is better than a socialist economy. Uh, if a guy like Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders or, or, or someone like Hillary Clinton, let's say they're great on the economy, that those policies they are putting forward are actually good. Of course, I disagree, but let's say that they were they'd still be disqualified because they hold to an intrinsic evil that it's okay to intentionally set aside an entire class of human beings to be killed. Uh, You cannot mix all that together and say, well, they're actually more pro-life because they're right on a majority of pro-life issues. And this is the danger that Russell Moore, Shane Claiborne, uh, Eugene Show, and all these other people that are left of center bring to the table. They want to cloud what it means to be pro-life, and they cloud that distinction between intrinsic evils and contingent ones in a way that a clear pro-life worldview would not. So it's been very important to discuss what pro-life means because that's the argument being leveled against pro-lifers who oppose the lockdown, saying you're not pro-life because. What is your actual take on on the lockdown and how we and how we should respond to this? Do you think the lockdowns should end? Do you think states should stagger a reopening? What's your personal take based on this article, which is over at uh, the, the Christian Research Institute, and I advise everybody to go and give it a read. It's, it's, it's really well worth it. But what's your personal view after having done your research on the best way forward? Um, for the economy, and for the the maximum preservation of life, as you put it. Yeah, I'm for opening up wide open everything. Let's get everything back open. Uh, A market economy is going to do the best job of lifting people out of poverty and preserving the resources we need to fight disease and help everybody live uh, longer and better. So I'm all for that, and my pro-life worldview informs that. And here's another thing we need to do here, Jonathan. People tend to define, quote, profits way too narrowly. They think just cold, hard cash. Uh, Profits can be a number of intrinsic goods, like having resources to educate my children, like having resources to provide the necessary medical treatment and health care they need like making sure they can eat nutritious meals, like providing opportunity for them to engage in talents and artistic endeavors like music and theater and learning. Uh, These are all wrapped up in the concept of profits. And what some people tend to do is say, well, you're just a cold, hard cash guy without really taking the time to think through what do we mean by profits? So I'm for opening up the economy. Now, do keep in mind in the article you referenced, uh, I don't take a position on when we should do that. I'm really only answering two questions. Who should decide how we structure society? Are doctors alone qualified to do that? And of course, my answer is no. The other question I'm dealing with is, 
uh, does it violate pro-life principles to want to open the economy? And I argue, no, it does not, because we've got to factor in other intrinsic goods like the ones we've already talked about. So I'm for opening up the economy. I'm for uh, getting people back to work. And I'll tell you what, in just speaking of, of my nation down here in the U.S., 47,000 million Americans going to bed every night, not being sure how they're going to feed their kids tomorrow, is more than just being greedy about profits. That's a disaster. And we need people to be able to provide for their families and a pro-life worldview would want them to do that. But there was one other question I wanted to run by you because I know there's been a lot of, as there always is in situations like this, there's been a lot of conspiracy theories floating around about the pandemic. And I really, I really dislike a lot of the conspiracy series that are flying around. I don't believe them, but I, I've been doing a lot of thinking over the last couple of weeks. And one of the reason that I think there's so many conspiracies theories flying around and plenty of them on the right wing, plenty of them uh, amongst conservative people like ourselves is because we don't trust the medical community on so many other things, right? So I, I feel like our fundamental distrust as pro-lifers of the medical community can feed into uh, these conspiracy theories. What's your take on that? Does that make sense? Well, I think we need to draw an important distinction between worldview-driven policy and conspiracy theories. A conspiracy theory is this. Uh, all those G5 towers we see out there, they're causing COVID-19. I mean, come on. That's just ridiculous. There is no evidence for that. Uh, or I've heard people say that the people inventing vaccines invented COVID-19 so that they would force the world yeah. into having to take a vaccine. Okay, these are conspiracy theories. They're nuts. Okay, there's not evidence for them. Uh, or not good evidence, I should say. However, it is not conspiracy theory to say there's a worldview operating behind our science. Science is not neutral. And often what happens, Jonathan, is scientism replaces science. Mm -hmm. Scientism is the worldview that says science and science alone counts as reality. It's the only thing that counts as real knowledge. And everything else is mere subjective opinion. That would include morals, religion, uh, economic theory, uh, moral theory. All of that is just personal preference. The only thing that counts as real knowledge is science. But the problem is science oftentimes uh, is not really science. It's scientism masquerading as science. And in this case, we have good reason to question the so-called science that's coming out of this COVID-19. For example, it's changing almost week to week. In January, Anthony Fauci told Americans the Wuhan virus was so inconsequential, you didn't have to worry about it a bit. It wasn't even worth thinking about, were his words. In February, he said exactly the same thing, that this virus uh, is really no big deal. We don't need to worry about it. And he, he said that basically, um, you might as well worry more about the flu. Well, by March, that had all changed. Uh, right. Everything had changed. First, we were told there'd be millions of deaths. Then it got dialed back to a couple hundred thousand. Now to where we're told somewhere between uh, maybe 80 and 100,000, which probably will end up being fairly accurate. Uh, then we were told initially that masks were good. Then we were told they were dangerous. Don't use them. Now we're being told again, you got to wear them in public. Uh, this thing is all over the map. And I think the scientific community needs to be a little bit more humble. Uh, scientists and doctors 
who would never accept an experimental cure for a disease are quite willing to step outside their fields of expertise and propose draconian economic policies that are impoverishing millions and they aren't qualified to dictate those policies and yet that's what's going on that's the worldview of scientism driving this debate scientism is a worldview that says we're qualified to speak on everything because after all we're the only ones with true knowledge uh, I'm sorry, we need theologians, philosophers, economists, historians, law enforcement, all need to be involved in this debate about how we should structure society. Doctors alone do not hold a corner on that. Now, we need to have an honest conversation about why it is that conservative-minded people often distrust these big organizations like the World Health Organization, right? The World Health Organization insists that the baby in the womb isn't a baby and that abortion is essential health care and is urging nations to ensure that abortion remains accessible during this pandemic. So I'm coming at the entire, like everything they say, I'm fundamentally distrustful because I already know they're lying to me when they start talking. I don't think they're trying to intentionally lie to the public on the COVID-19, but that is just where the, the distrust comes from right from the outset. It's because my pro-life worldview shapes my view of the medical community. Right. Now, I, I want to be clear here. We should trust doctors to speak with authority on how a disease works on a human body. They are absolutely qualified to talk to us about that. And they are more quali qualified than economists, philosophers, theologians, and law enforcement to talk about that. So my argument is not that they don't have a place at the table. My argument is they should not be the only place setting. Right. We need others involved in this. Once you start taking your medical expertise that is aimed at telling us how it affects a human body, and now you want to take that expertise in that narrow field and dictate policy across the board, that's where we, we can't allow that. We need to have other voices involved. And I understand why you don't trust a lot of them. Uh, take a state like Pennsylvania here in the U.S. Uh, their governor, Tom Wolf, allegedly locks down everything except for essential services, but of course abortion is qualified as essential services. Uh, now, meanwhile, uh, going to church or having uh, surgeries for your uh, cancer treatment or having uh, other surgeries that are uh, putting are needed to prevent your health from being at risk are all put on the table as non-essential, but abortion gets a free ride. You're right. That's worldview driving medical policy. That is not science. And, I, and I, I, I trust my doctor. I trust the medical community, as you say, on how diseases work. It's just that for me, watching these conspiracy theories come out and then watching progressives sort of mock those who get sucked into conspiracy theories. For me, I said, I, I just want to explain why people why people are, I think, um, often susceptible to conspiracy theories. And it's not just because they're stupid, credulous people. It's because they know you've lied about so many other things that trust has been eroded to the point where they are more susceptible to conspiracy theories that, to my mind, are obviously nuts. And it really does all all end up focusing around abortion. It's, it's interesting how much abortion drives the entire political conversation, how we understand the medical community, how we understand each other, how we vote, how we even understand this pandemic. It's fascinating the degree to which abortion is just sort of shaping everything behind the scenes. Well, you're right, and here's why it is. There's a reason why it comes back to abortion. I agree with you. The reason it comes back, Jonathan, is this. Canada, the U.S., 
we're having a debate over who counts as one of us. Right. When the debate is on the question of who counts as a member of the human family, that is, in this case, does it or does it not include the unborn? That is going to be divisive. It is not going to ever go away until one side overwhelmingly wins the battle permanently. And until you get rid of that, or until you answer that question, you're going to have a house divided. And that was Lincoln's point uh, going back a century and a half ago. And it's our point today. We're having a debate over who counts as one of us. And this is why I don't like it when guys like Russell Moore and others cloud what it means to be pro-life. Nobody is proposing we make it legal and fund it with federal tax money to allow sex trafficking. Nobody is suggesting we make it legal to intentionally keep people poor. Nobody is suggesting that we intentionally be allowed to kill immigrants, even ones who arrive here illegally. But our nation and your nation intentionally allows innocent human beings to be killed and promotes policies wholesale that uh, add to that killing, especially in, in Canada's case right now. So pro-life Christians are right to give greater priority to the greater moral issue right now, which is the intentional killing of an innocent member of the human family, and to say we're going to put most of our attention on that right now, rather than these other issues, which, by the way, millions of other people are willing to pick up and run with. Uh, you're not going to get attacked if you take on sex trafficking or fighting poverty. Uh, these are good issues, but you're not going to take any heat for doing it. You're right. With abortion, you're going to take heat. But that is precisely where the battle over who counts as one of us is most being fought. And we've got to enjoin that battle with everything we've got. Final question is, how has the lockdown been for you and for Life Institute? I've had, I don't know how many talks canceled. I was supposed to be in Colorado this weekend. I was supposed to be in the Netherlands a couple weeks ago and um, British Columbia next week. Uh, I'm not going anywhere. How, how are things looking for you and your colleagues? Uh, I don't know. Uh, most of my schedule through uh, uh, July has been canceled with the exception of some virtual events I'm going to do. Um, it's still too early to know. Uh, Donation-wise, we're, we're, we're not quite sure. It's too early. Uh, I think uh, by the end of May, we're going to begin to see trends as to what's happened. We, we know, obviously, that our, our giving base has taken a hit. We just don't yeah. know how badly. Uh, as for my speaking, uh, I'm hopeful that I will get back up and going again in the fall, but I have no guarantee. And just personally, the economic model I've had to embrace is that everything's gone for the year. Uh, I hope that's not true, and maybe it will turn out better, but that's what I've prepared for. I don't think any of us knows how badly uh, this hit has been, but I think I won't be surprised if I find out it's a whole lot worse than we initially. Right. Yeah, no, that's sort of the position we're in as well, too. You can't quite figure out what's, yeah, it's going to be take a couple of months before everything really sinks in. But uh, in the meantime, where can our listeners and our viewers read that article as well as find your other work? Uh, they can get the article uh, that you mentioned, the one about pro-life principles and COVID-19 uh, at equip.org. Just look at their homepage there. It's, it's right there. That's the Christian Research Journal article. Or they can look at my Facebook page. 
and and if you could, if you could put a link up at your uh, broadcast page, that'd be Will helpful. Do. And um, they can get it there, equip.org, uh, or they can just look at my Facebook page. If they want to reach us at LTI, they can reach us at ProLifeTraining.com. Again, that's all one word, ProLifeTraining.com. And uh, we have articles uh, there that will help equip your viewers on pro-life stuff. But I really appreciate you, Jonathan. You're one of the best in the business, and it is great to be serving in the trenches with you. And uh, look forward to hopefully we'll get together in Michigan in August. I'm hoping that event holds up. That's sort of the next one down the pipe that I'm like, hopefully we can still have that one. Hopefully we can still uh, you know, hang out and have a cigar and, and, and talk pro-life apologetics and politics. I'm glad you get that I get to use the word cigar here. Absolutely, we will do that. We will have a Spurgeon Fellowship. Exactly. That, that's a great way of putting it. Well, thanks so much for taking the time, Scott. I really appreciate Jonathan, it. Jonathan, you do great work. Thanks for having me. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with pro-life author, apologist and speaker, Scott Klusendorf. If you want to check out past shows, they air every Wednesday. You can head over to LifeSiteNews.com and check out the podcast tab. Please do subscribe to the show. If you've enjoyed this one, you can do that by hitting the subscribe button on this video. And if you want to see other life and culture news, again, you can always head over to LifeSiteNews.com where there's a lot of news waiting for you there. Thanks so much for joining us this week. And we do hope you'll join us again next week.